Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another Mind Matters show. Today, we'll be discussing a book called The Great Leveler by a Walter Scheidel. And the rest of that title is Violence and the History of Inequality from the Stone Age to the 21st Century. Uh, the premise of the book is that over vast numbers of centuries where we have the histories of various societies and empires and economies, uh, that the great leveler, the only influence uh, that has been able to distribute wealth more or less equally, or uh, at least um, in a more kind of uh, well-distributed fashion according to the standards of some, would occur when there was either some great leveling event like a, uh, a massive war or famine um, and other influences. So I guess we'll start with, uh, we, we started out reading the book uh, recently, and uh, I have to admit that after, after reading the introduction and, um, and the premise of the book, uh, which is the idea that it's only after these kind of great societal cataclysms of of war and or famine uh, or other such uh, disastrous events that there can be any kind of uh, good wealth distribution among people. It's, it's a kind of a um, an unfortunate uh, um, way of things. Um, so the author explains. And um, after getting over this, you know, this thesis, this main idea, uh, and being actually quite impatient to see how he develops it, how he looks at the various events in history that prove uh, that no government or, or system of governance has been able to distribute wealth equally, um, he, he kind of gives a broad accounting uh, for what various societies and, and economic systems look like and how it was that uh, certain uh, systems of political and aristocratic and elite rule have, um, have kind of uh, thrusted themselves upon the society of the working class, of the poor, and, and all the mechanisms by which they redistributed and accrued all of this power and wealth uh, to themselves. Uh, so he, he gives this kind of wonderful, broad uh, example uh, or set of examples of, of how this has been done over a, a wide array of societies uh, that was quite fascinating. And I found myself thinking as, as I was reading all of this, God, you know, how, how, how similar... Uh, are these systems and mechanisms that, that exist today. Um, it, it's, a, it's been a, a, a kind of a perennial uh, state that humanity's lived in, uh, you know, between the, the vast uh, inequality and, and power and, and wealth that's been held by the 1% versus uh, the larger numbers of, of people who have been uh, to one degree or another, subjugated by the elite, taxed, uh, held in um, held in uh, in credit bondage, 
and, uh, and it's always been that way um, to greater or lesser extents, depending on how concentrated uh, certain societies were in population, how developed they were in industry. Um, so, yeah, maybe that's a, a, good, a good starting point. Well, um, so you mentioned the main premise of the book. We're not actually going to get into that main premise, so you pretty much just summed it up um, as, as well as possible, that the, that the only way to achieve any kind of equitable, or the only way to re-equalize the, the inequalities that exist are through these massive catastrophes, essentially, mm. historically warfare and famine. And more modern, in, more, in a more modern sense, well, actually, um, the, the warfare has been a, the, a more modern sense, like with the world wars and the, the great like imperial and you know, state wars in the last several centuries. Historically, I think it was famine and state collapse. Um, like uh, the, the fall of great empires. And then um, in the modern era, we have warfare and what was the, the fourth one? Oh, revolution. Um, so, of course, all the great revolutions in the 20th century and, the revolu- and revolutions in the uh, earlier too, so in the uh, 19th, maybe even the 18th centuries, that's when, when um, revolution kind of showed what it could do. Basically, the only way to equalize wealth inequality is to bring everything down to zero and let it start up again. And then it comes through again. So that's what he talks about in the later parts of the book. We're just going to talk about like the, the first chapter essentially where he gives a history of the, the origin of inequality, the growth of inequality. Um, he basically lays out um, a case for how inequality developed historically and um, what were the, the, what were the things that, that made uh, made possible a more historically equitable distribution of resources. So maybe we can start there with um, with the more equitable ones. So he basically says that uh, um, from what can be gleaned in the historical record, that the Paleolithic societies were the most equitable. Um, you could say hunter gatherers, foragers have a more equitable on the whole, um, distribution of resources. But he says that's for a specific, uh, for, well, for specific and particular reasons. Because, um, first of all, these are often small tribes, so up to like a, a, a few hundred people maybe, um, and they're basically living at subsistence levels. So they're often nomadic, so on the move, so they can't carry a lot of personal possessions on them. So a lot of these cultures and, and uh, societies didn't have... Um, um, if at all, any developed idea of private property. And so a small group of people basically out for survival, and in that case, you had to share um, because you wouldn't survive if you didn't share. So, so some of the things that, that happened, or he gives uh, several examples of um, um, existing tribes like in the last hundred years or so, and then what can be gleaned from the historical record of you know what, uh, what tribes... 12,000 years ago and before might have been like. And from some of the modern examples, he gives uh, the example of one African tribe, for instance, that, uh, that didn't have, um, well, of course, didn't have very many personal possessions, so they might have, you know, s- some clothes and uh, a bow and arrow and some, some tools, mm-hmm. but they, they weren't very well made, and he says that they had no attachment to these items, like they could be stolen or broken, and it was no big deal because they'd just make a new one. 
and um, and so things were generally shared around um, through the, through the tribe. So you you would have um, like feasts. So everyone would basically eat. Everyone contributed, and everyone ate, and everyone survived. And the 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 there was a how to put it. There were social rules in place to avoid inequality. So. Um, so people, hung, uh, th people thirsty for power and authoritarians didn't do very well because they, they were acting against everyone else and naturally the, those people could then gang up on that person, either shame them or use violence in order to get them back in line. And that's essentially the, the picture that he paints for how, how tribes survived to a large extent for a long period of time. But even then he gives examples of, uh, well, counterexamples. So not all foragers and hunter-gatherers were like that. Um, for instance, there, was, um, there are examples from graves that have been uncovered that are like 30,000 years old. Uh, I'm not, I'm not going to get into that one, Corey. Not yet. <laughs> we'll get to that one. <laughs> but um, so, for example, some children, you know, a grave with these children who are just decked out in these elaborate um, uh, clothes, essentially, with seashells and, and all kinds of what, what are called prestige items. So fancy tools and weapons and, and clothing. And then oftentimes in these finds, the, the people around them, like you, you find some graves where there's people who are buried with a vast amount of wealth and then others, probably members of similar tribes or the same tribe, who are bar buried with very little. So there, wa there, was a, there was inequality in the sense that some people had prestige. Some people had a, a high place in the, in the kind of social hierarchy. But they didn't necessarily. Um, but that didn't necessarily mean that um, you know that there were starving people in the tribe, for instance. Um, you can't go that far. There was inequality, but it wasn't necessarily as um, as stark in terms of wealth as later societies. And we'll get into those uh, a bit later. And but going back even further, the he starts out the first chapter this history of inequality by looking at like apes and chimpanzees and basically showing you know basically what Jordan Peterson says a lot when he's talking about dom dominance hierarchies that um, these kind of tribal animals tribal mammals are are have an acute sense of hierarchy and it is a constant battle for for social position so essentially each each member of the chimp tribe or whatever it is knows on some level what his place is and is constantly trying to to get a bit higher up in the social hierarchy and that is primarily controlled through through violence so the you know the dominant um, the the alpha male basically can control um, a lot of sub males the the betas or the gammas through the the threat of violence and uh, but again, like Peterson shows, there's there's even evidence in the animal world of like coalition building and and sharing. So these other methods of gaining um, social worth and and value within the tribe that are then looked up up looked upon um, as leaders in a sense, people worth following or you know animals worth following. That kind of carries into um, humanity. There are several things about humans, though, that mitigate the 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 role that violence played or the threat of violence. Because, um, well, I, that's not exactly correct. Um, mitigated the the size and like the the physical um, strength of the the alphas. Because with humans, we can speak and we're smart. At least, you know, 
that's how we like to think of ourselves, smarter than some Smarter than those filthy apes. Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, and we're, we're also able to, to fashion tools and weapons. So some of the things that, um, that what, what he calls the first great, how does he call it? The first great, um, dis, the first great, great equalization or something like that. Um, I can't remember what his exact term for, for it was, but basically it was all of these things that made us human that, um, that mitigated those more like ape-like displays of dominance. And so because we could talk, we could communicate, we could now form real coalitions. And because of the, the, the use of like projectile weapons, so stones and spears and just, you know, if you can throw something at someone else, if they're smart, if they're stronger than you and you're 10 feet away, you can throw something at them and either kill them or incapacitate them. So that, that, um, elevated skill to the, the, to, to a higher level than just brute strength because if you're smart and if you um if you're smart and you can create allies and gain allies for yourself you can have a lot more power a lot more social standing than just um a super strong um you know alpha male for instance so that mitigated those the 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 more mammalian um, examples of inequality and hierarchy and basically leveled things out a bit, but there was, but even then there's always this, um, this inequality of one sort or the other. So there's always this social standing for instance. Um, but in a lot of these foraging tribes, for instance, they don't have, um, there's not a political structure so much like there, there aren't there aren't always um, identifiable leaders that hold a position for any great period of time. It, it uh, cycles back and forth. Uh, people take those positions and, and cycle, well, cycle in and out of those positions among the tribe. But even then, like I mentioned, it's not like all uh, foragers are these, or were, are or were, these kind of utopian um, equal societies. There were several things that would influence that too. For example, if you happen to be li living on a river or um, um, basically with maritime access to a, uh, a, a resource like fish that would establish basically, um, the, well, a scarcity of resources. And in a lot of hunter gatherer tribes, there, there wasn't necessarily much, much scarcity of resources because you didn't need much. You just needed enough to eat and survive. And that could be shared around the tribe relatively easily. When you have uh, a more more scarce resource, so a number of tribes, for instance, battling for control over a single source of fish, that creates the impetus and the, like the the the, the need for um, control of that resource. And so that's that's where you get the the start of um, separate classes or the, the or the the emergence of classes within a. Um, within a tribal structure like that. So you start getting chiefs who have um, like basically harems and slaves. And so even in, even in some of these foraging cultures, you had equality of, or inequality of that sort with, uh, with actual slavery and, um, and the kind of monopolistic control of a resource that creates um, class class divisions and inequalities of that sort, and then not only not only within the tribe, but of course between the tribes too. So then, of course, you you have to take into account tribal warfare, and um, the one of the main themes that stuck out to me from this kind of really really condensed history of like thirty thousand years of 
of inequality is the, the role of violence, both in equality and inequality, because it, was, it is the threat of violence that early on created the, the conditions for a more equitable distribution of status and resources, but it's also the, the practice and the threat of violence that, that um, especially later on with the introduction of agriculture, allowed for vastly more unequal structures in, um, in human societies. So maybe we can get, or did you want to say anything about that, or do we want to get into some agrarian stuff? Because, well, it's essentially, so until the Younger Dryas, we talked about that when we were doing our show on, um, on uh, Graham Hancock's book, Before America. Around that time during, well, after the Younger Dryas, that's the first time in the, re in the historical record that we find the emergence of agriculture. So in the, in the Near East, basically, in Mesopotamia, in, in Anatolia, in like southern China, in South America, within a few thousand years, agriculture developed in all these different areas. And that was kind of the, the, first, the first condition for the explosion of inequality on the world scene. Because, one of the, because Scheidel basically says, uh, or argues, that the, probably the most important condition for the creation of, um, of inequality and wealth is surplus production. Because like I mentioned in the hunter-gatherer tribes, they didn't have much, didn't need much, and couldn't have much because they were on the move. That you you can't carry a lot around with you when you are um, when you're you know traveling from place to place hunting and and you know tracking the movements of animals and trying to find um, hunting grounds. Essentially, you need a relatively um, static geographic location living uh, for, for of your living quarters and the surplus production of of food essentially in this case primarily grains once that happens now you've got more than you need and what happens when you have more than you need well this is where this is where the kind of the well this is where i think the the moral and ethical argument comes in because the <clears throat> Well, you have to keep it into account. You have to keep it in mind. Because like when, when you hear talk about inequality these days, it's like it's usually, well, oh, inequality is getting worse, and, um, and, it's, and it's a bad thing. And that's where the, the discussion ends. It's just inequality is bad, and we need to do something about it. Well, the response, I've got like a couple of responses to that. First, if Scheidel is right, there's nothing you can really do about it because it'll always be there in one form or another. And at a certain level, you just like there's nothing you can do to get inequality below a certain level. It'll just it'll always be there. On the other hand, like Scheidel mentions, inequality at certain levels can be argu arguably a bad thing. Like um, that, probably even even the right wingers who are who are like um, don't really care about the don't really care about anyone that doesn't make as much money as them, even they might, well, he would argue even they, or he would argue he's got an argument for why even they should agree that inequality can be a bad thing. For one, um, you know, he quotes some studies that, um, that show that like, the, the vast disparity in wealth actually slows economic growth and can have bad effects on the economy. Um, economies do worse off when there are vast inequalities. Um, but there's also just the moral argument of of whether it is 
is right or wrong, or if it's not even a moral question, whether yeah, or what the moral status of inequality is. It's like... Right, well, I think there's a good point to be made there between maybe a, a distinction between uh, ethical inequality and unethical inequality or earned inequality and unearned or, you know, whatever, unethical inequality that would basically be, you know, he points out the extreme, like one person owns everything right. and everyone else cannot survive and that person just, you know, just gloats over them. And so that's clearly one example of inequality. But then there's another one, and I can't remember if he brings it up or if I remember Jordan Peterson bringing it up, but it's Price's Law, which is, it was created to identify why so many people in the academic field publish so many papers, uh, a large percentage, a disproportionate number of the of the papers in that field uh, as compared to the rest of their peers. And so this gentleman, Price, I can't remember his name, but came up with a law that says that 50% of the work is done by the square root of the total number of people who participate in the work. And this has been borne out like time and time again. It just seems to be a mathematical aspect of human life. I'm not sure if anybody's heard of the 80-20 rule, which says that, you know, 20% of your customers, you know, constitute 80% of your profit or, you know, something along those lines. But so if you have 100 people in a tribe, that means that 10 people are doing 50% of the work and then the rest are doing the other 90% of the work. And it could be due to all different sorts of um, different sorts of reasons, just skill, character, you know, you have leaders, you have, you know, all sorts of things that could constitute what would eventually become an unequal uh, share. You know, I put in more work, I get, I get more. And then, you know, you can say, well, okay, that's fine. To some degree, you know, everybody is, um, you know, in a small group like that, you can, you can get away with, um, with making those kinds of deals, with understanding why there is inequality. You know, the chief, he's, he's big man. You know, he gets the, the first share, but he's, you know, he deserves it. He, he earns it. You know, he is the father figure, whatever, for the whole tribe. Now, um, on the other hand, you know, there's also, you know, more unequal and unethical distribu uh, distributions that we, you know, that now you get, it all gets lumped into like, you know, the 1%, you know, it, it just doesn't look good when you have whatever 1% of the people who own, you know, half of, half of the wealth. But, you know, as it's been pointed out, we don't know why it is that way. We can't say, I mean, nobody has the power to, to, uh, to make that happen, you know, there's some natural element to it that, you know, it just happens over and over and over again throughout history. For example, Shadell writes that, um, you know, so have the rich simply kept getting richer? Not quite. For all the much maligned rapacity of the billionaire class, or more broadly, the 1%, American top income shares only very recently caught up with those reached back in 1929, and assets are less heavily concentrated now than they were then. In England, on the eve of the First World War, the richest tenth of households held a staggering 92% of all private wealth, crowding out pretty much everybody else. Today, their share is a little more than half. And 2,000 years ago, the largest Roman private fortunes equaled about 1.5 million times the average annual per capita income in the empire, roughly the same ratio as for Bill Gates and the average American today. He concludes by saying, for thousands of years, civilization did not lend itself to peaceful equalization. Across a wide range of societies and different levels of development, stability favored economic inequality. This was as true of Pharaonic Egypt as it was of Victorian England, as true of the Roman Empire as of the United States. Mm -hmm. And like as you said, 
before Harrison, you touched a little bit on the specific reasons why, and it seems like it's due primarily the the two crucial determinants of inequality are ownership rights and land and livestock, and the ability to transmit that wealth from one generation to the next. You know, has been pointed out a million times. You know, nobody starts in the in the same spot. You know, when you're born, you start from a whatever disadvantage because of you know your ancestors. You know, if you um, just going back in time, the the cumulative choices, the the different pressures and stuff. A lot of th- the stuff just happens by accident, you know. And and people, you look at that, and it doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem fair that your you know great great grandparents were born into slavery, and then you know then that you know a few a few generations later they were still struggling to make it in society because of whatever whatever issues. And so it's it's clearly it's not fair. Um, but it is something that has been repeated time and time again throughout history. And if you're really serious about the issue, you have to look at the facts and you have to, you have to understand the gravity of the situation. You know, you can't just say, well, inequality is evil. Inequality is bad. So whatever, Mm -hmm. you know, so now let's, now let's do something about it. Now that we've said that it's bad, Mm -hmm. let's do something about it. Well, um, taking that a bit further, I think that, I think there is an argument to be, well, I think on the one hand, like you're saying, it's hard to say that that inequality is just bad, um, just categorically bad, because we don't even, like you said, we don't even understand why it is a recurring phenomenon. Um, it seems to just be like inbuilt into nature to some degree. Um, again, comparing it to the Paleolithic societies, there was inequality of a sort, um, and and that could have been as simple as skill or just um, just social prestige. It might not have translated to a great degree into um, into just you know how much food you you got to eat. But there was an, a type of inequality. Now, for the past ten thousand years, there's been um, a different type of inequality, like a new type of inequality that has been brought about because of the production of um, a surplus of primarily food. Um, that was the big driver of the of the, the the large increase in inequality in those years. So now now we can ask, well, what you know what do we say about that? It could be that inequality is an inescapable thing, not you know neither neither good nor bad, and sometimes sometimes good, sometimes bad, depending on the situation. But there may be an inherent evil in a certain type of inequality mm-hmm. when we look at it, yeah. and so. It, it may be that like at a certain, it, well, when you're just looking at like a graph, for instance, it may be if, if you could have all the information to plot a perfect graph, because even like all of the, all of the, the graphs that, that Scheidel and the, the, like the historians and econ- economists working on this come up with, even in their graphs, there are um, problems with, with the data. Like I know Nis, uh, Nicholas Nassim Taleb is a big critic of uh, Gini coefficients because according to him, the, the outliers um, because of the because of the the sample uh, because of the sample of examples that you use in you know co- in compiling your data, if you just miss one or two outliers, that could have a, a huge effect on your your Gini coefficient. Gini is the, like the the statistical number that they use to show um, a type of like wealth disparity in societies. So it goes from zero to one, zero being the most equal and one being the most unequal. And um, and so I think the United States currently is at about 0.5 or something like that, and um, some of the Paleolithic societies are down in like 0.2 or lower, and um, and some 
some uh, some agrarian societies can get as high as like 0.6 or 0.7, maybe even higher. I don't know, can't remember. But just 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 as a, a matter of like the the randomness of the the data the data available, it could be that ancient societies were a lot more unequal than than we than we. Uh, than we think, just because we don't have access to you know those one or two outliers in the in the the tail end of the of the distribution that will change the whole number. But anyway, so even accounting for for that, if we had all the information and could come up with this, it may and just looking at it, it may be like um, okay, well here's here's kind of natural inequality. Um, if we just let people do their things, and they can even be behaving in um, what we would consider, you know, according to our modern morality, like decent ways, it could be that uh, that if you add some other thing into the equation, you get bigger inequalities. And uh, what I'm thinking about specifically is this um, this phenomenon that Scheidel talks about in the history of like of agriculture is that the agriculture uh, like agriculture seems to have um along with agriculture inevitably came the creation of like power elites mm -hmm. these new classes of people that didn't exist previously and that that gained um like uh, a huge amount of that surplus and like reading through history not just Scheidel's book but um well any history if you're looking at the history of the ancient near east or even like you know colonial america you just find a lot of what you would consider nowadays like base criminality these are just like uh, basically mafia thugs just shaking people down for their money like protection rackets like you pay me and I'll protect you and that has pretty much been the the history of power elites um otherwise well, nowadays known as governments and mafias, like people that just shake down the people under their control through the threat of violence in order to get stuff for themselves. And so he's got this, like, a, a, I, I was really intrigued by his, his description of, like, the, the growth of elite classes and the methods that they used to, to um, like, keep their positions. And so he basically says that like societies were unequal at this point, and they got even more unequal because of essentially the predations of this elite class on everyone else. And um, and well, he, he basically just like I'd recommend reading it just for his description of like of of the powerful and leaders and um, like when and when you read about it, it makes sense. Like all these decisions makes sense. It's like, okay, well, I can see how, how and why that happened. It's like, you've get, you get this surplus production, you get um, a, like even just a, a group of families that are then out to protect what they produced. That has created this level of, of um, inequality. And then um, like one of the things about, about goods and private property is that it's defensible. You know, that means you can defend it against outsiders. You can store grain, but that means you need now you need the creation of like an organized, um, an organized um, like group of violent people to protect it. And just through that, now you have more money. And then it's kind of like the the, the typical anti-capitalist, anti-monopoly -mono uh, argument that, that the more that person acquires, the more they can acquire with what they already have. Mm -hmm. And so the, the wealth, their wealth just kind of rises exponentially. Um, well, there's a limit to how much wealth can be gained by, you know, any one person, but uh, maybe we'll get into that in a second. But so you have the creation now of these elite classes and w with the rise of the, of states. Now you have leaders 
who, um, or, the, or the rise of empires, you have the, the leaders of these empires who now have to control these geographic regions. Well, one of the, the characteristics of, of um, ruling, of leadership, historically and arguably today, is the, the delegation of lead, leadership authority. You have, to give, you have to delegate and give people power to be able to, to then um, um, like protect uh, like the king or the emperor, emperor's power. He has to give other people power in order to keep his own power. And that creates, again, that expands the, the, the elite class. And how do you give that, or what are the perks that you give this person in order to defend you know, your claim to the, the throne, essentially? Well, you give them wealth and land, and now they're protecting their own pro property, the property that, you, that the, the, the leader has given them, often by stealing it from someone else. And so you get this entrenched kind of system of just organized theft, which is, and, and then it is, uh, it is kept in place through, um, well, through um, taxation and um, rents. So, you know, the money you can make off your land and the, the money that you get as a state official. And there is incentive now, because you, incentive and precedent for, for, um, now further expanding your wealth through any means necessary. And that's the history of, of kind of, uh, of um, well, government and, and elite classes, is just getting as much as possible through any means possible. Um, and well, whether through warfare, war, uh, warfare is a good example, like the, the way that war um, promotes inequalities, essentially one group of people attacks the others enslaves them so now gets free labor labor and gets all their stuff mm -hmm. so the the ruling class now has all of that and those people that were conquered now have nothing mm -hmm. and not only have nothing are now slaves themselves so you know their their own selves have been stolen yes and and if you don't think that uh this exact dynamic and paradigm uh doesn't exist today um in in some similar form then uh what can I say? You haven't been reading Sot, uh, because um, what we're seeing in the wars of the Middle East, uh, you know, acquiring uh, influence in Afghanistan over the mineral, uh, the, the vast mineral deposits, the, the, the oil in Syria, et cetera, et cetera, uh, subjugating uh, through sanctions and, and various other um, policies that have, uh, that have kept the, the kind of sovereign impetus among many people um, down to a certain level, or, or it's an attempt to, uh, I mean, this is, this is, a, this is a, a perpetual state of affairs. And he seems to be making the point that um, once a nature, uh, once a nature, once a nation uh, moves into this kind of imperial paradigm, um, it becomes very hard to uh, turn back the clock to regulate it, to reform it. Um, and he gives several examples of this, one of which I found kind of interesting. Um, he writes, from early on, the ongoing acquisition and concentration of private wealth in elite circles caused certain concerns for rulers who needed to protect primary producers, who were expected to pay taxes and perform labor services for the state, from predatory lenders and domineering landlords. From the mid-third to the mid-second millennium BCE, 
Mesopotamian kings periodically decreed cancellation of debts in an attempt to slow the advance of private capital. For all we know, this was bound to be a losing battle. A telling illustration of, of these tensions can be found in the, quote, Song of Release, a Hurrian myth translated into Hittite in the 15th century BCE. It features the Hurrian weather god Tasub, who appears in the city council of Ebla in northwestern Syria in the guise of a debtor, visibly in dire need and, quote, dried out. King Megi has clashed with the city's powerful notables over the release of debt slaves, a measure deemed required by divine command but successfully opposed by Zazala, a gifted orator who sways opinion in the elite council. Under his influence, the councillors offer Tasub gifts of gold and silver if he is in debt, oil if he is dried out, and fuel if he, if he is cold, but refuse to free the enslaved debtors in accordance with Megi's wishes. Quote, But we will make no release of slaves. There will be no rejoicing in your soul, O Megi. They invoke the necessity of keeping debtors in bondage, for... If we were to release them, who would give us to eat? On the one hand, they are our cupbearers. On the other, they serve food to us. They are our cooks, and they wash up for us. So there's this, um, there's this sense that uh, quite often you have a, a leader who does want to uh, equalize uh, the situation on the ground for many of his people. Um, but you have these gifted orators. You have... Uh, in our day and age, propagandists and politicians who are, argue eloquently for their position and sway uh, whole groups of their uh, population and, and people in, the, in, the, in positions of power to not reform things. Um, you know, we, we've seen that situation uh, in Imperial Rome, where there was this constant tension between the populars and the Senate um, to redistribute the wealth, to give the, the lower merchant class uh, more, um, more money, uh, more access to food, more access to land. Uh, and there was, all, there was always, among the, the Senate and the old school, the old guard, uh, this, this attempt to keep the reins on power and to, and to crush uh, this, this kind of... Uh, equalizing force with, with with whatever means were necessary. So they they would form coalitions uh, in order to squelch the kind of uh, impetus to for greater equality. But when that threat was uh, alleviated, they would squabble among themselves for the spoils, and um, and and there would be a, a, an incredible amount of infighting among them, which include mm. incredible acts of violence and assassination. Um, and really just the kind of, the kind of lateral movement of huge sums of wealth and land and slaves from one oligarch, uh, to the other, um, almost always with this, you know, with this force that was pushing down upon the, the greater masses of people who, who were either slaves or freed slaves or merchants who were looking for their piece of the pie. Well, I think that's... That's really interesting that you bring up the the kind of the attitude of these oligarchs 
you know, it, it sounds to me a lot like something we've discussed on the show, uh, previous shows, is the the schizoidal declaration, the idea that people are so bad, their nature is so horrible that they have to be kept in check, have to be kept in thrall by some supreme force, mm-hmm. you know, and so you have to keep them enslaved, you have to keep them in debt, you have to keep them in bondage of, you know, some kind or another. But I mean, really what it is, is just a rationalization for your own laziness. You know, you're the rentier class, you just, you know, you just deserve it just because you are so special. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and, and that's, clearly you know a, a theme that runs throughout through, just throughout history is that idea but when you look at you know human nature i mean it just seems natural that we are we have such a variegated psychology uh, such a so much potential to be you know different people and we're also very hive like too you know like we want to specialize people want to go and become something you know they that's kind of, you know, that puritanical calling or whatever, the, the Protestant ethic, you, you know, that your, your calling in the world is to do some kind of work and to specialize in, in it and to do work well. And that ethic runs completely counter to such a thing. It's like, you know, people don't need to be kept in absolute slavery bondage. You know, that's kind of the capitalist ethic is that, no, let people go out, choose their work, and and the whole system will kind of sort itself out on its own. The people who does, who should get what they, you know, people will get what they deserve. That's the, that's the hope. That's the, that's the, that's the hope behind, behind that. And it's, it's interesting to me how demonized that, you know, capitalism is when in fact, it's a little bit different than that system that we're talking about that's been going on for centuries, because it's been, it hasn't been a competence hierarchy. You know, humanity hasn't lived in competence hierarchies like that for, for a long time. You read this book and it, I mean, a lot of it sounds like like you, what you guys are saying, the the elite, you know, this elite rentier class basically gets to make deals. They know the right people. You know the politicians. You are a politician. And that still goes on to this day. There's still mm-hmm. clearly not everything is organized in, a, in terms of competence. But more and more people are, you know, trying to do such things. And I mean, you, billions of people in China, you know, lifted out of, out of poverty, utilizing such a, you know, schemes, you know, trying to organize things competently and effectively to get people to to you know kind of bridge the gap rather than well you know they just deserve their position because they are slaves and they're in the lower class when as as i said before all of those things are just you know fundamentally who who knows it's just the roulette wheel of the universe wherever you're you're born you're born into some position or you're born into another position well you mentioned the schizoidal declaration that uh you know, human nature is so bad that people need to be controlled by a strong government, essentially. essentially. Um, I think that you could make a, a reverse declaration. From my from my reading, this this is kind of what I would call the libertarian uh, declaration, is that human nature is so bad that a system of government should be set up that no one can achieve, like, the level of... Uh, of power that governments have maybe even governments should be uh, uh, abolished in some sort um at least that would be like the the anarchist libertarian position that uh, there should be no government because governments are essentially um essentially evil um but human nature is so bad that uh, that a system let's say a societal system should be set up so that no one can achieve that level of power over other people and uh, power and coercion and be able to to use violence and the threat of violence to um, 
to violate other people you know, and their property. So that would be like the capitalist version. It's like you have the, the kind of almost but not quite communist hunter-gatherer societies, because they weren't, they weren't communist, um, like Scheidel argues. And then you've got the rentier class capitalism, you could call it, of um, power elites who are um, essentially, who have essentially got there through no talent of their own and through just the exercise of brute power and the th uh, violence and the threat of violence. And then you've got this, um, like, what I'd consider more of a, more of a city, well, larger society-based um, economic system so that uh, that is more appropriate for like the modern age through uh, what what we are essentially you know, you know an agrarian um, like surplus based economy there's no getting out of that at this point aside from you know a, a, a catastrophe that puts us back to paleolithic conditions um, of inequality there will be inequality in such a system but it's kind of the I wouldn't say the best of both worlds but it's a at least, at least somewhere in between, somewhere in between the the vast inequalities that are created through theft and violence, and the the equalities that are only able to be found in small communities. There's got to be there's got to be something in between because we don't live in small communities. We don't live in tribes anymore. Mm -hmm. We're not. We're never going to get there. Aside from um, side, aside from people that voluntarily choose to do so and to create their own communities, mm -hmm. um, you know, communes, um, you know, intentional communities, those sorts of things. Aside from those people, there has, th 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 there's got to be another way essentially. And I think that's what, that's what a lot of the idealists, um, whether from the, the left or like the, the, like the libertarian left or right, um, that's what they're searching for. You know, th I think everyone, Everyone who rails against the one percent has some some idea that there's something wrong with society as it is now, but I don't think they quite get what the problem is. They might identify some symptoms of the problem, some actual problems, but I think that the like overall it's very misguided um, and simplistic. It's like if you're if you're railing against just inequality as such that's a losing battle. Mm -hmm. Like it, it's, you're not going to get anywhere. You're just going to make things worse by, by pursuing that as, uh, as your like rallying cry. It's not going to, it's not going to get anywhere. Um, there, but there may be certain aspects of, of the, just the, the, the economic and social and moral systems that we have today that, that are, that would be more effective if tackled head on. And like, who knows, it might be as, it might be as simple as um, paring things down to, like in, in a in a capitalist economy, paring things down to um, a very a very well defined system of like property rights, for instance. Um, it's like if you were if you were able to enforce um, certain like property rights and laws, that that might actually be a, a very effective way of redistributing wealth because there's a lot of wealth that is ill-gotten for instance if you could if you could just take all the wealth that is, was gotten by theft and give it back to the people it was stolen from and i'm not just talking about like rich people that make money and it's like oh that's my money that rich person has stolen it from me no like like actually 
really getting down to the nitty gritty and finding, oh, well, where, where did that money come from? It's like, did you actually steal that according to these, you know, legal principles that we've developed? Was that ill-gotten money? And if it was, like that, that just that in itself might cut off like uh, a large portion of the, of the, um, of the, the, of the, the vast inequality of wealth, you know, that's at the, that's at, that's within the 1%. Who knows? You know, I'm not, I haven't, I'm not an economist and I haven't <laughs> developed this, but it's like the, there's, there's gotta be something better than just, okay, now we're going to tax everyone, you know, 70%, take all this money and then just we'll redistribute it now. Um, cause there's, there's so many problems inherent in that. It's like you, you are, <laughs> Well, it's the it's the problem that part of the problem is what Scheidel talks about about just power elites. Mm-hmm. You for for any government, do you want any government to have the power to take that much money from the population? And what are they going to do with it? It's like because the history of elite classes is that you shouldn't trust them with your money. Yeah, because they're they're going to do. First of all, they're they're not going to manage it very well. They're going to waste it because they didn't do anything to earn it. Like that's the problem with bureaucrats is that they they get paid with other people's money to do something, and they have no incentive to do a, a good job at it because they're going to get that money whether they do a good job or not. And that's the problem with politicians. Politicians have absolutely zero skin in the game. They have no no incentive to get things right. Their only incentive is to convince people to vote for them. And it doesn't matter what their what their record is, what the you know, how how effective they are at actually doing something right. And more and more often than not, uh, they leave office far richer than uh, exactly. than when they came in. Right. But you know, your your point reminds me of the what is it, the twenty three or twenty four trillion dollars mm-hmm. that the Pentagon is is uh, largely can't account for, yep. and you and you stop and think about the mind-boggling uh, amount of money that's been siphoned off of uh, American taxpayers that's unaccounted for, mm-hmm. that that has gone into all kinds of uh, black projects that um, that we only have hints at uh, in in the news, space programs, uh, underground bases. Uh, arms, exotic arms, and and all kinds of of projects that are uh, that have effectively made um, the the people who are in in the industry of of making arms and and manufacturing various things very very rich secretly. Um, and you stop and think. Uh, so there's this incredible concentration of you can call it. Um, elite industrial military um, magnates who who have managed to through their connivances and uh, and skill at manipulation to to gather all of this money um, right under the noses of uh, of the three hundred million uh, American citizens. I forget the number of of American citizens, but that's effectively what's happened and. You know, in, until until we can figure out a way to counteract uh, the the kind of um, pathological greed uh, that that goes that is um, informed by the behavior of these individuals uh, who have managed this incredible sleight of hand, um, 
it, it seems to me that the best we can do, um, because, you know, we'll, we'll never get to the point where there's a critical mass of people, I think, who really understand the level of criminality that exists. And that's just in that part of the, that's just one industry. The banking industry is another. Mm-hmm. Big pharma is another. Uh, the food industry is another. Uh, energy sector is another. I mean, these are all um, uh, interlocking elite mechanisms for siphoning off vast amounts of, of wealth and life's blood uh, from, from, the, from the working class. So uh, we are at a distinct disadvantage. And um, what is the answer to that? Well, Corey, you posed a question a little bit ago. Um, or at least it, it raised some, some questions in my mind about the, the few approaches that people can take to realizing, uh, you know, the, the vast inequality. Uh, one is they can rail about it and bitch about it and, and, uh, and hold up banners and, and, uh, and get angry. And, and I guess that's uh, purposeful up to a point if it raises awareness of a certain issue. Uh, but there's certainly a toxic level of resentment that doesn't do a person any good. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's, a, there's another approach, I think. Um, a friend of mine was once telling me about her landlord, who, who was a wonderful man, who's an entrepreneur, an innovator, an inventor, employed 30 people, uh, rented the apartment that she lived in with her son and daughter, uh, at a very reasonable rate, beautiful place, well-maintained. And he also had a, a, a kind of place in their lives, too. He was a friend to them because that's who he was. Uh, he, he took responsibility for other people. Uh, he, all the while, was a fairly wealthy guy. He was able to do both. He was able to, to be a kind of a caretaker for people who were less innovative and less savvy than he was, uh, and also live a very comfortable life. And I thought, why, you know, why can't we strive for that as an ideal among ourselves? You know, uh, it, 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 it must have been, by the description of this man, I've never met him, uh, it must have been a, a very gratifying existence for him to be an innovator, to, to uh, accrue wealth and comfort in his life, but to work hard and to see to it on a personal level that the people who uh, rented from him uh, lived as happy a life in, in the dwelling that he rented out to them as they could possibly have. Um, how the hell does a person, you know, how, how does a person achieve that kind of life? That's what I'd like to know. Right. I, I've, I've always been working class. I've always, you know, banged my head against the wall for a few shekels. Uh, <laughs> and I would like to, as an ideal, work towards that more kind of, um, that wonderful uh, example of, of this gentleman who, the fr- you know, my friend described to me. Right. I think that's actually a really great point because what you're talking about is like really a fundamental distinction between like just an attitude shift uh, that I mean, if you're going to be, if you want to fight inequality, that I think that is it's really important. It has to come from some place within where you're, you know, you're not wanting to fight inequality because you want to be the rich guy because you're a materialistic swine just like everybody else, mm-hmm. but you want to 
you want to fight you want to fight the unethical aspects right. of inequality and you want to you want to live uh you know you want to live in a way that makes life better for other people that you want to be effective you want to be competent you mm-hmm. want to make life easier for other people you don't want to make it you know miserable you don't you know you want to live for other people you know that's how you judge your life basically is the impact that you have on other people and you you know that's that's the that's the that's the, this big thing because when you think about these materialistic you know elites and you know the the life they live you know I, I don't envy them one bit. No. Look at Barack Obama when he comes out of office. He looks like he's just aged seven hundred years. Mm-hmm. He looks like a lich. You know, he looks like some undead thing coming out of office or or like you know some so many people they they've got they just they look like robots. They no joy in their life because at that level you know. Uh, you know, it's it's hard to live at the bottom of the hierarchy, right? Mm-hmm. They make you know, you're just you're a mess. Life is horrible. You know, you never know if you're going to have a meal or or whatever, right? But then at the top, it's like the exact opposite. I guess they just you know they just function like they're on cocaine or meth. You know, they just have some you know biochemically. It seems like we're just hardwired, and we have been ever since you know we first found out that we could you know convince everybody that we deserve everything. <laughs> we just you know we deserve to live like kings. That you know we just we're just biochemically hardwired to just pump full of just these horrible drugs that turn you into. Um, you know, like sociopaths who, I mean, and who, I mean, I don't even know if I'd be any different if I was born into some uber rich, you know, household and went to all the right schools and went through all of the, you know, the ivy, ivory tower, you know, indoctrination. And, you know, the, your whole goal in your life is to cheat the other guys who are trying to cheat your family. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how can you scam your way through the tax system and let's write up an income tax code so that we can get, you know, as much money as we can and this and that. You know, it's just, it's this whole, uh, it's this whole, you know, what do they call it? The hall of mirrors where you just get sucked into this narcissistic, delusional, self-focused prison of your own self. And you end up like, you know, like Mm -hmm. a, you end up like one of them. Well, you know, that's, we've learned that we learned that lesson like thousands of years ago. We know that's not what, that's not what life is all about. That's not where you find the meaning in life. There's there's uh, there's an entire there's an entirety of the universe out there that uh, you know a whole other half of the universe that isn't just selfish and and you know narcissistic like that and it's it's really adopting that attitude I think where you can actually start a successful I mean whatever successful in your own little life um, way to fight the the real dramatic un. Uh, the inequalities that that plague all of us because we're all mm. jerks, you know. We all we all live in this pecking order. We all do those kinds of things, you know. It's um, well, yeah. first of all, amen, brother. <laughs> and and secondly, uh, you know, I, I think I think that um, that was a good display of humility too, and and something that uh, has also been one of the lessons of Jordan Peterson that any one of us uh, can succumb to uh this deep uh narcissistic selfishness that uh that seeks to um cut out uh those around us and and those below us uh at their expense largely at their expense um and and there is another way 
but it but it is dependent upon us to see how that uh, to see that possibility and to uh, manifest it and to make it real and um, and to also be kind of painfully aware of the fact that we could at any time be behaving in a way that uh, that seeks to you know uh, raise ourselves uh, in in the most arrogant selfish and uh, and really destructive way uh, especially to those around us uh, Gurdjieff you know talks about the Abhi Vatel, mm-hmm. uh the 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 very kind of basic standard of 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 personhood that would be able to support 30 people uh, if necessary. Uh, now, he's talking about subsistence levels, I, I think, if I remember correctly. But that's, you know, that there, there is, a, uh, there is a, a, an, a, an attempt there to say, if you're, really, um, if you're really responsible and thinking about others, then as a kind of standard for uh, being a good human being, at, at the very least, you should be able to support 30 people. And, uh, you know, that's 30 people is a lot of people. That's a lot of mouths to feed. That's a lot of beds and clothing and, and, and other things. Um, and you need money to do that. And you do. You need, you need to have uh, a way to, to make that money. Mm-hmm. Right. And right there you have an inequality. Right, mm-hmm. but it's not. It's completely different from the kinds of inequality that people will rail against. Right, but still, it's an inequality. So we can't just make a blanket statement saying that all inequality is evil and and bad. We have to. We have to be realistic. Right. So what you said in in your previous statement, Corey, you'd said something about, like we should fight the ine- the unethical aspects of inequality. You could just you could pare that down even further. Leave inequality out of the equation. Just you know fight the. In- Fight bad ethics, fight uh, you know what amounts to to immoral and unethical behavior. Essentially, what should be illegal behavior, based on um, or um, whatever can be enforced, whether there's a legal system or if it's in a small tribe, just the the social code of that of that tribe, enforce the enforce the good behavior, the, the good and the bad behavior. Like make those distinctions and then enforce them, um, but. But the the like the systems our systems aren't set up in such a way, um, or or if they if it's if it's been attempted to set them out, up that way, um, people are very good at finding the loopholes. Mm-hmm. And so, well, I wanted to I'll read something uh, from the book. He's talking about the the rise of these elite classes, and so Scheidel writes um, of the ways in which. Um, um, it's easy to appreciate how the defining features of pre-modern state formation uh, just outlined would have influenced economic activity in peculiar ways. So he's talking about how how these um, how these features of state formation and the elite class actually impact um, economies. So he writes. Political integration not only helped expand markets and lowered at least some transaction and information costs. The pervasive power asymmetries that commonly characterized pre-modern polities all but ensured an an uneven playing field for economic actors. Fragile property rights, inadequate rule enforcement, arbitrary exercise of justice, the venality of state agents, and the paramount importance of personal relationships and proximity to sources of coercive power 
were among the factors likely to skew, to skew outcomes in favor of those in the upper reaches of the status pyramid and those profit, profitably connected to them. So it's like, that's the, the problem. It's like the problem isn't inequality. The problem isn't even some people, you know, making more money or having more wealth than others. It's like, the, um, I th- I'm sure we've talked about it on previous shows um, about like surveys that are done and like people at the, at the bottom level of the economic spectrum don't hate rich people. They hate a particular type of rich people. Mm-hmm. You know, they pretty much everyone is fine with a certain type of inequality. Mm-hmm. If, if there's a billionaire and they think, well, wow, that guy, you know, that guy worked to get there, they're fine with it. They, they couldn't, you know, they couldn't care. Like they'll, they'll buy his records if he's a musician or read his books if he's a writer or, you know, mm-hmm. buy his products if, he, if he's got a company that produces something like that. It's like no problem. And they might even look up to him. But if they find out that someone is just a thief like uh, you know, running Ponzi schemes or something like they, they'll, they'll have no respect for him and they'll want to see him taken down. Mm-hmm. You know, that's where the resentment comes into to, to a large degree is seeing someone, you know, above their station, you know, mm-hmm. and that's what Lobachevsky talks about, about the upward and downward adjustment. It's like when you, when, especially when you are a person, um, a talented person who's in a position, like a very low position, like not, uh, below what you would be capable of, and you see someone who is below your level of competence in a position of like uh, of extreme authority or, or or large authority, that just that rubs you the wrong way. That rubs people the wrong way, and that's what creates like revolutionary um, sentiments among people. But just just having a boss, people don't naturally just hate their bosses because they're bosses. They hate their bosses if they're bad bosses. If you've got a good boss, then you're fine. It's like you, 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 you might even respect that person. Well, I'd like to qualify that a little bit, Harrison, because what, what we've been seeing today uh, in Western society and Western culture uh, is a group of people who hate their bosses because they're the bosses. Right. These are the ones yeah. who, who say, I can spell hamster with a P. And, <laughs> and um, it, it's... You can't. <laughs> and, and so it's... You know, it, it's one of the reasons I think we're even discussing uh, inequality today, in addition to the fact that this, you know, um, Scheidel lays out the history of inequality and how it's been changed or not changed and by what factors, is that you do have a people, uh, a, a certain segment of the population that is now um, uh, thinking at, thinking outside of the, this, you know, what may be deserved uh, wealth and, and inequality and want, uh, want the power and, and want the wealth uh, by mere fact of them wanting it mm-hmm. uh, and without any, any kind of uh, deservedness, if that's a word, or, or earned, mm-hmm. um, you know, earned wealth or, or capacity. And I'm, I'm sure that many of the people that you mentioned who don't resent people accruing wealth uh, are are probably the 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 working class the people who have very uh, naturally healthy attitudes towards making a living and being responsible for themselves if not families and and who have a, a kind of a, a a range of moral taste buds that's in the in the healthier spectrum of of people who are stratified in in this system of wealth inequality well, there's another thing to to mention, and that's 
you know, kind of be careful what you wish for, because inequality, as he points out in the book, has been leveled uh, quite a number of times in the past, but it's typically by very lethal and, you know, horrifying events. So, you know, if you hate inequality, then you know, don't worry, it probably won't last that long. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, I want to read a few quotes, just some interesting bits before we wrap up today. Um, I mentioned earlier that there was a there was a, a grave that was dug, and I said we'd talk about it later, so I'll read that one, just because it's quite humorous. Um, okay, so a cemetery... This is Harrison in his past life. <laughs> no. <laughs> a cemetery at Varna by the Black Sea, in what is now Bulgaria, has yielded more than 200 occupied graves from the 5th millennium BCE. One burial stands out. A middle-aged man laid to rest with no fewer than 990 gold objects, weighing more than three pounds total. He was covered in gold ornaments that were probably attached to his original clothing, carried heavy gold rings around his arms, and wielded an axe scepter. Even his penis was sheathed in gold. This man's grave accounts for a third of all gold objects associated or found at this site, and a quarter of their total weight. Grave goods are very unevenly distributed overall. More than half of the occupied graves contain some goods, but fewer than one in ten is rich in deposits, and only a handful contain a wide range of materials, including lots of gold. The Gini coefficient for the number of goods per grave varies from 0.61 to 0.77. That's really high on the Gini scale, depending on the period, but would be much higher if we could adjust the distribution for, uh, for value. Um, just a comment on the Gini scale. Um, like I think it's in the appendix. Scheidel points out that like you can't in practice get a Gini scale that goes up to one. There's always a limit to the to the amount of inequality that a society can sustain um, before it collapses. Essentially, like or the only way that well, it's just not sustainable because once you get to a certain uh, Gini coefficient for essentially your GDP or the amount of money each person person has. There's a subsistence level of of uh, Gini coefficient. So, past a certain level, people start dying. Mm -hmm. You know, because they don't have any money, they don't have any food, and at that point, it, that you can't sustain the inequality because the the rich people the rich people can't sustain their wealth when everyone's dying around them, um, and that comes into the like that's why famine and warfare are levelers for instance uh, tons of people die and the the economy just can't sustain itself under the, those levels everything and everyone just drops down to zero you have to start over again um so even in so when people are talking about like the the rising wealth disparities in in various countries um uh, they can only go so high um and and there's a like historically there are um there are even reasons for keeping keeping them keeping inequality at a certain level, um, because essentially you need your slaves basically to to live in order to make stuff for you, and that transfers over even into modern economies. It's like you, if if all of the the employees of big corporations started dying, the you know the corporations would start being like, okay, we need to pay them more. Um, you they wouldn't just let everyone die. Essentially, you know, roughly. So, in other words, um, I think one of the big takeaways uh, from from uh, what we've been discussing so far is you, you can't take it with you. And um, 
for all the elitists out Not there. Not even your golden penis sheath. <laughs> no. <laughs> Took the words out of my mouth. Uh, <laughs> Uh, your your success um, is in many ways dependent upon the the success and the uh, relative equality of those around you, um, and arguably, you know, would would make for an even richer, more meaningful life if if it's in you know if it's in your thinking or being uh, to consider such notions uh, to help those around you. Uh, well, yeah, I was just, I was going to say that's, um, that's the only thing you can take with you, I think, is the meaningful impact of, of your life. You know, you're <laughs> the guy with the golden sheath and all that stuff. I mean, he's just a joke now. <laughs> yes. He's, I mean, maybe he was a great guy, but I, I highly doubt it. <laughs> I, I, you know, he was probably a, a petty tyrant and everyone was like, God, he's wearing the sheath again. <laughs> You know, this is, um, but yeah, I, I firmly believe that, you know, if that's, that's probably the only thing that you can take with you is the meaningful impact that you, you had on other people. So, you know, all of that other stuff aside. Well, and just one more, one thing to, to keep in mind when, like, if, if just hearing the word inequality makes you, you know, want to start a revolution and kill some bankers, um, to, to read some history, um, like read this book and, just consider how bad, how much worse things were, like even a thousand, three thousand years ago, where basically they're well, not everywhere, but in certain societies where the elite class literally had everything or what amounts to everything, and everyone else was at the very bottom, just living bare subsistence. Mm -hmm. It's like well, and that's that's essentially um, well. Today, that can well that would apply to everyone in extreme poverty. Today, it's like there are there are um, a lot of very rich people. There are a, there's a huge like um, global middle class, and then there there are still several you know millions. I don't know the number, hundreds of millions of people living on less than essentially a dollar a day. But consider yourself um, like if you're a university student just think about how rich you are compared to those people that live that are alive today and compared to what people you know what your ancestors were living through thousands of years ago under some you know feudal overlord who was you know doing all sorts of unspeakable things and stealing your rightful property <laughs> yeah that's uh you that's you bring up a really funny point there because you know you're a university student on this basically a resort you know uh you know a vacation but and you're complaining about the hardships yeah okay well on that note everybody uh we appreciate you listening today and uh we look forward to revisiting uh the great leveler and um expanding on uh, some of the ideas that he presents. Uh, this is just the beginning, I think, of, uh, of our kind of discussions on, on this book. And, um, yeah, have a wonderful week. And uh, we look forward to having a show with, uh, with uh, Corey and Harrison very soon again and uh, presenting some new, insightful, hopefully, and, and interesting material that... Uh, that you can take away and that'll be a movable feast and, uh, and that you can enjoy and, and recommend to all your family and friends. Hey, like, and subscribe. <laughs> all right. See everyone. <laughs>